So in the last few weeks, oddly enough, I've had several friends have appendectomies due to appendicitis. It's kind of all coalesced at once. I don't really know why or the rhyme or the reason. But as we were talking about this, it was, it, you know, it's very obvious that it's a, a routine procedure, uh, very quick. You know, the infected organ is removed. And for the most part, life goes on with hardly a scar to show for it. See, when it comes to the human body, there are certain parts that are expendable. They serve a purpose, they're important, but they're not vital to live. They're not absolutely necessary to live. And so one way you could think about it is that the human body has a certain set of irreducible minimums. What that means is there's this core set of vital organs without which life isn't possible. There are some organs and parts of the body that we can live without. Again, they're important, they're valuable, no one's like wanting to give them up, but you can live without them and they're therefore expendable. So for instance, you could lose a hand, but you can't lose your heart, right? You can give up a kidney, but not the brain. Do you see those category distinctions between what's vital and absolutely necessary versus what is important but expendable? Likewise, Christianity has a set of irreducible minimums as well. It's a core set of vital doctrines without which Christianity is not possible. If you were to remove some of those irreducible minimums, some of those vital doctrines, you'd have something left over. It just wouldn't be Christianity anymore. This is the mere Christianity that C.S. Lewis set out to explain and defend in his work, Mere Christianity. Look what he wrote in his introduction. He says, ever since I became a Christian, I've thought that the best, perhaps the only service I could do for my unbelieving neighbors was to explain and defend the belief that has become common to nearly all Christians at all times. For I'm not writing to expound something I would call my religion, but to expound mere Christianity, which, what, which is what it is and what it, was, and what it was long before I was born, whether I like it or not. What he's looking to defend is these irreducible minimums of Christianity, kind of the the vital core set of doctrines without which you no longer have Christianity. It's the absolute basics, it's the essentials that, that essentially can't be reduced any further and still call it Christianity. Today in John 3, we get to eavesdrop on Jesus and a man named Nicodemus as they discuss one of those irreducible minimums of Christianity called regeneration. If you're taking notes today, you want to write that word down, regeneration. It's a theological term that simply means to be born again, to be generated again, to be born again. It's a helpful word to add to your Christian vocabulary because it is one of those essentials. It's one of those things that you can't remove and still have Christianity. And as we listen in on this conversation today, we're going to learn three things about regeneration. The first thing we're going to see is the necessity of regeneration. See, being born again is not a perk of Christianity. It's not something nice to add on. It's it's absolutely essential. Without regeneration, Jesus is going to tell us today, you cannot see the kingdom of God, let alone be a Christian. Second, we're going to see the nature of regeneration. If it's absolutely essential, we're going to want to understand like what it is. Where does it come from? How can we get it? We need to know the nature of it. And finally, we're going to see the means of regeneration. How does one become born again? What is, this, this gets at the how. We're going to see um, Jesus explain how one becomes born again. So we'll see the necessity, 
the nature and the means of regeneration. Start with me in verse 1 as we look at the necessity. John writes, there, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So John kind of gives us his resume, introduces us to this character, Nicodemus. Now he belonged to this religious political group known as the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees, for them, the way to God, the way to um, express your relationship with God was through strict obedience and moral performance. So they were students of the law, they read the law, they understood God's word, and they were so vigorous and so determined to follow God's law that they created this extra set of laws on top of the law to just ensure that they lived it out with strict obedience because in their, in their mindset, if they were uh, to, to, to lax on God's law, if they didn't perform enough, then God would not accept them. They controlled the synagogues where people would come and hear um, God's word taught, and they were highly influential people. But not only was Nicodemus a member of the Pharisees, he was also a ruler of the Jews. Now, when John uses that, that, that phrase, ruler of the Jews, he's talking about this group known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 um, high-level Jews. Uh, think of them kind of like senators, right? And so they were underneath the power of the Roman government, and they really gave oversight to Israel on its day-in and day-out um, affairs under the watchful eye of the Roman government. So you think about it. He's a, he's a Pharisee, and he's a member on this council. He's a highly influential, successful Jew, a member of the upper echelon of Israel. Now verse 2. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, earlier in a couple of verses earlier, it says that Jesus, during his time at the Passover, had done many signs and was preaching throughout Jerusalem. And so Nicodemus starts to hear the buzz, and he comes to Jesus at night, very likely to avoid the public scrutiny given his, his high status as a Pharisee, given his, his, his membership in the Jewish council. And he wants to have a focused conversation with Jesus without interruptions. You can imagine a, a guy like Jesus who can do the things that he's doing and he's got the prominence. He's probably never really alone during the daytime. Crowds are always around him. And he wants a focused conversation. He's got some things that he wants to answer. And so he begins the conversation by letting Jesus know where he stands, okay? Here's what I think about you so far. I can see you teach with confidence and authority. That's clear. And the signs that you're doing, they just couldn't be done without God's power and endorsement. So we know that you're a good teacher and that you've come from God and you have his power. But at this point, Jesus or Nicodemus isn't ready to call Jesus the Messiah. He's not ready to call him a prophet. You notice he says rabbi. So like he, you're, you're elevated in some sense. You're a teacher. Uh, there, there's something about you that's distinct, but I'm not quite ready to go to like a status of prophet or Messiah. And so even though he hasn't asked a formal question, there's kind of this implied question in there. Okay, this is what I think about who you are, but Jesus, are you something more? Is there more to you then meets the eye. And Jesus responds to him in verse three. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Now, at first glance, it seems like 
you're answering a question that really hasn't been answered. And even if it's the implied question, you didn't answer about who you are. You said something about me. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And Jesus, you're going to notice as we go through John, Jesus just cuts through the fat, gets right to the heart of the matter. He tells Jesus, so Nicodemus starts telling Jesus, hey, this is my initial assessment of who you are based on what I've seen. But Jesus questions Nicodemus' ability to even make a right assessment of him. He said, you're trying to look at me and determine who I am, but you're not born again. You don't have the right eyes to be able to see and assess who I am. You're not going to rightly be able to assess who I am and interpret the signs that I'm doing because you're not born again. Because see, if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? Here's a very helpful definition from Jeremy Treat. He says it like this, very simple. You can't get more reduced than this. The kingdom is God's reign through God's people over God's place. Here's what that means. The kingdom of God is his sovereign reign. God is the king. And he reigns through his people, the church, over his place, which is all of creation. So that God is king over creation, and he's working right now to restore what's been shattered by sin so that his people can be saved from death to enjoy life and enjoy him forever. And so Jesus is saying, if you don't have born-again eyes, you won't be able to accurately see the kingdom. And without a born-again heart, you won't be able to accurately assess that I am Jesus, the king. You're going to miss it. In fact, in a couple verses uh, later, he's going to say, unless you're born again, not only can you not see the kingdom of God, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. And so right there, Jesus is emphatic. He said it. If you take away regeneration, if you take away being born again, you can't participate and experience the kingdom of God. It is one of those irreducible minimums of Christianity. If you take regeneration out, you no longer have Christianity. Now you have to realize that statement alone would have shocked Nicodemus. See, the theology of his day would have thought, listen, I'm, I'm a Jew. All Jews get admitted into the kingdom by way of their birth, by the way, the fact that they are Jewish, they get a pass in to the kingdom. And the only way you give up that pass is by abandoning the faith in some kind of cataclysmic way or by participating in some kind of heinous, extraordinary sin. If you're a Jew, you're born into it, and the only way out is to kind of remove yourself from it. But Jesus says, listen, pedigree, race, have nothing to do with it. So here's what this means. It means two things. First, no one is exempt. No one is exempt from being born again. You remember Nicodemus's resume? He's a distinguished teacher, a member of the Pharisees. He knows the law inside and out, and he was probably really good at following it too. You don't get to be a member of the, of the Sanhedrin without being highly successful and, and your peers seeing this guy knows how to live out God's law. And as a member of the highest ruling council, he's got a great reputation. This guy, if you had seen him, you would have said, this guy has his life 
together. You know those kind of people? You just, you just see them, you, you, maybe you meet them, you go, their life is all together. They're not in debt. They've got their house paid off. Look at the cars they have. They've got reputation. They've got status. They've got it all figured out. And he's thinking, if there's anybody, anybody who is first in line to be accepted into the kingdom of God, it's Nicodemus. But Jesus says, listen, your resume, even your curiosity about me, your belief that I'm a good teacher, none of that will transform you and make you born again. Jesus is looking Nicodemus in the face and saying, Nicodemus, you, even you need to be born again. You know why? Because everybody needs to be born again. If anyone deserved a pass or an exemption, it was Nicodemus. But Jesus says no one is exempt because everyone needs to be born again. Now think about it. If Jesus had gone up to a guy on the street, you look at him, his life is in shambles. There's just a trail of disappointments behind him. If you hear his story, there's just a path of destruction and collateral damage. And if Jesus told that guy, hey, listen, you need to be born again. You need a do-over. We'd get it, right? That guy obviously needs help. He needs a life do-over. So for Jesus to come to the broken down man and say, you need to be born again is obvious. Nobody would question that. But for Jesus to go to the guy who's well put together and say, hey, you need a new beginning too. It's remarkable. And what that tells us is if the guy who has it all figured out still needs to be born again, that means there's no one without need. So that means the moral and the immoral, the religious and the irreligious, the elite and the illegitimate, Everybody needs to be born again, no matter your pedigree, no matter your background, no matter your family history, no matter your ethnicity, your race, no matter your current state of affairs, everybody needs regeneration. No one is exempt. And number two, it means this, there is no other way. Not only are there no exceptions, but there are no other pathways. Does Jesus give Nicodemus a buffet of options to choose from? Hey, listen, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you could be born again, or you could uh, perform well, or you could do this. No, he gives him one pathway. You want to see the kingdom of God? You want to enter into the kingdom of God? You must be born again. Jesus gives one way for a person to see and enter the kingdom of God, and it's by being born again. Now, I know immediately as I say that, that is insanely unpopular in the current culture of our day where tolerance is king. Just to say, nope, there's one way and it's a very narrow way is intolerance. And that's the one thing a tolerant world will not tolerate. His truth is narrow, but friends, it's open to all. Without distinction, without exception, If you want to see the kingdom of God, you can, and it leads to life. Regeneration is necessary because everyone without exception needs it, and there is no other way. Now let's look at verse 4 to see the nature of regeneration. So it's necessary, but what is it? Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, Nicodemus is processing all that Jesus is saying, and let's give him some credit, okay? He's not a dummy. 
He doesn't actually think that entrance into the kingdom requires two physical births. Your first birth as a baby and then a later awkward, weird, impossible birth later on in your life. He understands that this is a spiritual metaphor. But what he doesn't understand is how it's possible for someone to just start their life over as if they've been reborn. And more than that, he doesn't understand how a man of his pedigree and of his moral character would be in need of radical transformation that is wrapped up in the metaphor of being born again. So he takes Jesus's metaphor, adds a little bit of a snark to it, and uses it to show, listen, spiritual rebirth is as unlikely and unrealistic as it is for a man to enter his mother's womb a second time to be born. It's like Nicodemus is saying, hey, Jesus, you like birth metaphors? I can play that game too. I've got one for you. So Jesus responds back and says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So instead of backing down, Jesus doubles down and says, unless a person is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. But this time he adds some further explanation of what it means to be born again. So when Jesus says to be born of water and spirit, what is he talking about? We've got a slide here where we've put um, verse 3 and 5 right next to each other on top to see the parallelism of the two things that Jesus says. If you look at the first and third lines, the A and the, the, a and the C, they're nearly identical, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, and he cannot enter, he cannot see. And in the middle there, you have unless one is born again, and then unless one is born of water and the spirit. And when we see this next to each other, we realize they're parallel. They're talking about one and the same thing. Now we might miss the Old Testament illusion that Jesus is referring to because we're not deeply saturated in the Old Testament culture like they would have been. Have you ever had those moments where someone can say something and it, and, and it, and it sparks a line of a song, right? Like when I was thinking about Jesus not backing down, I started thinking Tom Petty, right? You can keep on pushing me around, but I won't back down, right? You, or, or someone says something and immediately a line of a movie comes into your head. See, when you're saturated in a culture, it just takes a couple of words to trigger that song or that movie line or that memory, right? So when Jesus is doing that, he's triggering some Old Testament illusions that Nicodemus should have picked up on because he's highly saturated in that. So here's where Jesus is kind of pulling from. It's this passage in Ezekiel where the concepts of water and spirit come together in the context of radical transformation. We'll have the words on the screen. Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Do you see that already? We've got water and spirit in there. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give, uh, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What God is promising through the prophet Ezekiel is that we will be cleansed with a water that washes away our impurities and idols and that God will give us a new spirit that transforms our hearts. He's talking about a significant radical transformation that's that 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 that's so radical it's like being born again and that radical transformation 
Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah all talk about that will become the new mark of citizenship in the kingdom of God. See, God's program is expanding. It's not only for Jews, it's open to all. And the marker, the way that you get into this thing is not through uh, your moral performance, but through God's transforming, regenerating work. It's what's happening on the inside, this heart of stone. Can you imagine if your heart was stone? You couldn't, you couldn't live, right? It has to be able to, to be flexible and to pump. It's a muscle. But if it's stone, it can't do any of those things anymore. A heart of stone is a heart of death. And God says, I will, you can't remove that on your own. You can't do that kind of heart surgery on your own. It takes the spirit of God to come in and remove out that dead, unbeating heart and put in you a new heart that pumps spiritual life. And you can't clean up your life. It's like giving a child, like a, 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 if a child spills something on the floor and you ask them to pick it up, what they just move it around. They just don't know how to do it. That's like us trying to clean up our own lives. We can't do it. We try it, don't we? But we can't do it. We need God to come in and do that which only he can do and bring cleansing. Now for a Jew of his caliber, this idea that he needed to have his whole life cleansed, that he needed a spiritual heart transplant, that he needed to be born again, would have been very difficult to receive. See, most people, including us, think what I really need is some improvement. Most of us are not arrogant to go, man, I, I, I'm just killing it at life. In every way, in every interaction, I am morally perfect. I, I've, I've never met somebody who would make that kind of audacious claim. But most people go, I'm not that bad. I'm actually pretty good. And what I really need, what I could use from religion is just an improvement. I'd like to incrementally get a little bit better. But improvement is not regeneration. You don't need to get incrementally better. What you and I need is radical transformation. See, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good and to make good people better. He came to make dead people alive. Dead people alive. And that's what it means to be born again. John Calvin wrote, by the term born again, he means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of a whole nature. Hence it follows that there is nothing in us that is not defective. See, the, the, the trace of sin and the destruction in your own life is so deep and so pervasive, you don't need mere improvement, you need a radical transformation. You don't need parts of your life transformed, you need a renewal of the whole nature. And that's what regeneration is. The nature of regeneration is a whole radical transformation. It's the birth of a new, redeemed, and transformed nature. Now Jesus goes on to explain, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So Nicodemus, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He's giving him a metaphysics lesson. He says, look, like generates like. Natural human birth produces people with human natures, right? Humans produce humans with human natures, but only the Holy Spirit can produce and give birth to a spiritual nature because the spirit is spirit. The spirit begets spirit. 
See, you can't generate your own spiritual birth. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. You hear people talk all the time how they're guiding and directing and starting their own kind of spiritual journey as if they could generate spiritual renewal on their own. But friends, that's not Christianity. What Jesus teaches is only the spirit of the living God can generate real spiritual awakening, the spiritual renewal and the spiritual transformation. And then Jesus gives us an analogy. Verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know from where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the spirit. Now, he's making an analogy between the wind and the spirit. And what's really cool happening in the Greek is that it's, a, it's the exact same word. The word for wind and the word for spirit are the exact same um, Greek word. And it's actually, actually the same in Hebrew as well. And what he's doing is he's saying, look, the effects of the wind are like the effects of the spirit. Just like wind can't be controlled by human beings. Now, you might be thinking, well, Clint, there's modern meteorology now, right? That, that brings some understanding. I get it but it doesn't bring total comprehension. I mean, meteorologists get to be wrong like half the time, right? But it, and it also doesn't bring the ability to control it. You and I cannot make the wind blow, nor can we stop it. So on a hot summer day, we can enjoy its breeze. And when a dangerous storm comes, what do we do? We take shelter, right? If we had the ability to stop it, we wouldn't need to take shelter. We can't control the wind and we cannot control the spirit. Jesus says, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. You cannot make, manipulate, and force the Spirit to move. But when the Spirit of God moves, you can see and feel his effects. Just like the wind blows where it pleases, the Spirit of God moves as he pleases to give spiritual life and rebirth as he sees fit. Remember John 1, verses 12 through 13. John said, but to all who did receive him, who believed in Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, look at me, listen to this, who were born not of blood, so it doesn't matter your race, nor the will of the flesh, like I'm just gonna do it. I'm gonna muster up the desire to be born again, nor of the will of man, but of God. Where does spiritual birth come from? God. You need another one? Here's one more. 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, look at me, he has caused us. Who caused us? He caused us. Who's he? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It doesn't say, blessed be me. According to my great mercy, I've caused myself to be born again. That's not what it says. That's heresy. God the Father causes us to be born again. John and Peter are saying, regeneration, it's not racial ethnicity, it's not caused by human exertion or performance. We become born again because of the gracious initiative work of God. Full stop, friends, it is by grace alone. It's a gift. Now just think about the whole analogy of birth itself, right? He's talking about being born again. Birth is not something that you can generate on your own. You did not conceive you. You didn't birth you, right? You had nothing to do with your natural birth. And likewise, you have nothing to do 
with your spiritual rebirth. Listen, before your spiritual birth, if you're saying, Clint, I am born again, I am a Christian, before that moment, you were spiritually blind and dead. Blind means you cannot see, dead means you cannot move. That's why Jesus says, without being born again, you can't see the kingdom of God and you can't enter it because you're a dead, blind person on the floor. That's why we can't see or enter the kingdom. If God doesn't move, our situation is helpless and hopeless. John Piper writes, we do not cause the new birth. God causes the new birth. Any spiritually good thing we do is a result of the new birth, not a cause of the new birth. It's important we don't dis- make the dis- that we make the distinction between cause and effects, right? This means that the new birth is taken out of our hands. It's not in our control. And so it confronts us with our helplessness and our absolute dependence on someone outside, outside ourselves. Now, friends, look at me. This is the greatest news you could hear this morning. And yet we get so up in arms when we hear this because we want to be in control of everything. We love our control. But think about it. If it were up to you, would you be able to clean yourself? Would you be able to give yourself a new heart? I mean, haven't you tried that? Did it work? Of course not. No one can clean up their life on their own. How unloving would it be if God said, this is your mess, now clean it up. If God said, you ruined my good world, redeem it yourselves if you want it. How unloving would that be? We are the ones who got ourselves into the mess in the first place. How loving of God that he steps in and says, hey, you made the mess, but I'll clean it up. You walked away, but I'm coming after you. You hardened your heart, but I'll give you a new one. In Mere Christianity, Lewis goes on to write, a statue has the shape of a man, but it is not a life. A man who has changed from having bios, that's biological life, to having zoe, which is spiritual life, would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. And that's precisely what Christianity is about. The world is a great sculptor shop. We're the statues. And there's this rumor going around the shop that some of us are going to come to life. Friends, that's Christianity. That's what regeneration is all about. This radical transformation where we go from being statues, mannequins, to real persons, from death to life, from being physically alive to being truly alive because of the gracious work of God. Friends, regeneration, it's absolutely necessary. Everyone without exception needs it. There is no other way. And Jesus has now explained the nature of it. So look with me at verse nine to see how we get it, the means of regeneration. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can these things be? Jesus answered, aren't you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. 
Now that son of man phrase, Jesus uses it all over the gospels. It's his favorite way to uh, refer to himself. We don't have time to go into the Daniel 7 backgrounds, but if you want to read Daniel 7, you'll see who the son of man is. Now Nicodemus wants to know how this works. Okay, I'm, all right, I'm with you. I, I have to have it. it I see that I'm, I'm picking up what you're dropping, but, but how? How does this work? Now first, Jesus responds with a rebuke. He's saying, listen, as one of Israel's most distinguished and elevated teachers, it's your job to understand the Bible so he can teach others. Of all people, he should have understood that the new covenant, that that promise I read to you in Ezekiel, Jeremiah 29, that the new covenant promises anticipated a radical transformation at the soul and heart level. And what Jesus says is the reason you don't understand is because you're not listening with a receptive heart. It's not that you're not intelligent enough. It's not that you're not witty enough. It's not that you're not smart enough. It's that you are blocked off. You're hearing my words, but you're not listening with a receptive heart. Jesus says comprehension of heavenly realities requires a receptive heart. You have to be willing to receive. Conversely, an unreceptive heart will not understand what Jesus is talking about. And he goes on to say, listen, I've, I've just started to cover the basics the earthly things, you're not even ready for those heavenly things. You wanna know how this works on like a, like a real level? I, you don't even understand the basics. How could I tell you the more complicated realities of the kingdom? And then Jesus adds this gem. He says, by the way, do you know why I'm able to speak and teach with the kind of authority that I have? It's because no one has ever ascended to heaven and come back down to tell us about what they've seen but I have. You see, heaven was my original home, and now I've come down here to tell you all about it. Jesus is asking Nicodemus, do you really want to know? Then you need to open up your heart. You need to look inward and ask, hey, are you you just intellectually curious, right? Are you just curious about who I am, or do you really want to? to know? Are you coming with an open heart? Seven Mile Road, I want to ask us the same question. Are we just intellectually curious about Jesus? Is he kind of like the, 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 the current thing we're on? Or are we coming with open hearts to hear and receive what he has for us? Now verse 14, he goes on to explain how this works. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, Jesus says, hey, you're an Old Testament teacher. Here's a story for you. Numbers 21, the people of Israel, they've just been delivered out of slavery and they're in the wilderness headed towards the promised land and they are grumbling and complaining against the Lord. I mean, God is literally causing food to, to, to come on the ground. Quail is like being rained down from heaven and they're going, I don't like what's on the menu today. They're going, man, it was way better back in slavery. And God's going, really? Really, you're gonna grumble and complain? I just delivered you out of slavery. I'm providing food, manna, bread from heaven. You've got meat, you've got bread. What else do you want? They're ungrateful. They scorn him. And so God sends a plague of poisonous snakes in judgment. Then Moses as the leader of the people, intercedes and prays and asks that God would relent. And here we pick it up in Numbers 21, verse eight. 
the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, all you had to do was look at the bronze serpent and live. So Moses makes this pole with the serpent at the top and says, look at the snake and live. And anyone who was bitten by the snake and poisoned would look at the serpent and live. See, the bronze serpent became God's means of salvation, his way, his provision for those who were poisoned by the snake. Jesus is making an analogy. He says, so likewise, I am God's means of salvation for everyone who's been bitten and poisoned by sin. Jesus says, just like the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so I will be lifted up. And whoever looks to me for salvation, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. That phrase, lifted up, was a colloquial way at that time to speak about someone who had been crucified. When you have something that's so awful and so gruesome as crucifixion, you needed a way to speak about it in a way that was kind of more easy to receive. So they'd say, hey, did you hear that so-and-so got lifted up? That's talking about crucifixion, lifted up on a Roman cross to die. Jesus is saying, I too will be lifted up. I will be crucified. I will be lifted up on a Roman cross to become God's means of regeneration. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to us, just like the Israelites were instructed to look to the serpent for new life, we are to look to Jesus for new life. Nicodemus wanted to know how it all works. And Jesus says, new birth is experienced. Eternal life begins through the saving cross work of Jesus Christ when you receive and believe him in faith. And then Jesus goes on to explain even further, John three sixteen, maybe like the most famous verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's amazing when you put that verse in, in the context of the passage, right? It's not just up on a, uh, a poster board. Like if you watch the pass game today, you'll probably see John three sixteen, right? Here we learn that God the Father loves the world. That little word for at the beginning, for God so loved the world, F-O-R, it indicates the reason that God the Father gave his son. What's the reason God the Father gave his son to us? Love, plain and simple. God so loved the world. Now look at me. God doesn't love the world because he looks down and sees how lovely we are. We like to think, we're so lovely, we're so deserving of your love, of course you would look down on us and love us. God loves us simply because he is love. Love exists in the very first place because God exists. There there wouldn't be love without God. And God's love for us is not conditioned on who we are. It's not conditioned on our performance. It's solely conditioned and based on who he is. God loves because it's who he is. Despite our wickedness, despite our rebellion, despite our filth, God looks on us and says, I love you. He hasn't given up on us even though we've given up on God. But God doesn't just love the world in theory. He loves it in practice, and he proves that love 
The giving of the Son of God is the objective evidence that God the Father loves the world. So if you're saying, prove it. How do I know you love the world? God says, I've given you everything. Not, I, I've given you my son. Not some consolation cheap prize, but the infinite costly gift of his son to save the whole world without distinction and without exception. So it's not just a particular people group. It's not just a particular ethnicity. It's not just a particular group of people who are gonna be really good at living out the Christian life. He loves the world. And he gives his son. He goes on, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the the name of his only son. Here's what John is saying. The world is perishing, and God the Father sent God the Son on a rescue mission to bring everlasting and ever-increasing life to those who would believe in him. You send a rescue mission to those who are perishing, right? Jesus didn't bring condemnation. It was already condemned. It's already perishing. And that's the whole point of a rescue mission, right? You rescue people who are in danger, who are in peril. You don't send a rescuer to people who are safe and sound. You send a rescue mission to those who are in need. And Jesus says our need is that we're already condemned. We're already perishing. And so God's love for the world results in the mission of the Son to bring salvation, to bring rescue, so that whoever believes in him experiences the new birth of regeneration and receives eternal life and is saved. And John says those who reject, those who do not receive the Son, perish and are doomed to destruction. Again, there is no middle ground. There is no, those are the only two options, no third way. He says, you either receive and believe in the son and all of the benefits and blessings that come with it, or you reject him. He simply says, look to the son of man, look to me and have eternal life. Verse 19, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. As John closes, he says the light of the world has come into the world, but instead of receiving that light, people will choose to remain in their darkness because they love the darkness and they fear being exposed. So as the the light is going out, they, they keep cowering back into the darkness lest the light shine on them and expose their deeds as being wicked. But those who love the truth who love the light, they, they see the light and they, they walk into it, they come into it to have their deeds exposed. But when their deeds are exposed, their sins are forgiven and they walk with God. Now listen, what John isn't saying is this is how to live out the Christian life. He's gonna get into that later on. He has a whole epistle about it. But what he's saying is that the way you know that you've received and believed in Jesus, the distinguishing mark, is that your life will be characterized by walking in the light and walking away from darkness. It becomes a a way to, to judge your own salvation, to go, have I really and truly received? 
And you can ask yourself, is there a propensity to walk in the light? Or is there still a a propensity to walk in the darkness? See, friends, belief in Jesus is not a one-time event where you make a decision and then you get to go on about your life. Like when I got the chicken pox vaccine, it was a one-time thing and then you go about your life. Jesus is not a sin vaccine where you get a shot from him and then go on about your business. It's a call to look to Jesus every single day for your very life, to walk in the light, to live your life in humble gratitude to the one who left heaven to be lifted up on a cross, to die in your place so that you could experience ever-increasing life and everlasting life. So as we close, let me ask you this. Have you received and believed in Jesus? Have you? Have you walked out of the darkness into his light? Just like the Israelites in their desperation looked to the bronze servant with their imperfect and inadequate, inadequate faith. I mean, one minute they're grumbling, complaining against God, and then God says, here's salvation. He doesn't ask them to clean up their, their mess. He just says, if you've been bitten and you want to live, believe my word. Look to the serpent and live. And in the same way he looks at us, he doesn't say, clean up your life and then I'll look at you. He just says, in your inadequacy, in your imperfection, I've provided a way of salvation. Look to the Jesus on the cross. Look to him. Believe in him. And you'll be born again. The whole point of this conversation was to get Nicodemus to realize he was not all set. None of us are all set. He was in imminent danger of perishing and having condemnation settled with a final judgment from God if he rejected God's gift. Just like all gifts, you have to receive it. The gift can be perfectly wrapped to meet your every need and it's there. But that gift doesn't become yours, what? Until you receive it. Until you say, I want that gift. I'm gonna open that gift and I'm gonna use this gift. That's when that gift becomes truly yours. The same is true for every one of us. Every one of us, without exception, needs to look to Jesus to be born again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God in Christ has extended the greatest gift to you and to me. Have you received that gift?